0: Well, hello there, Ambush, and welcome to this episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast, here with me, your host, Colton G. And today on the show, we are joined by author Martin Popoff as we talk about his new book, Limelight, Rush in the 80s. Yes, prestigious Canadian journalist, critic, and author Martin Popoff is joining us here today. He is the author of over 90 books. He was the co founder of Brave Awards and Bloody Knuckles, a magazine on heavy metal which ran for 15 years. And well, Martin also happens to be one of the premier researchers on the group. Rush. He wrote their 2003 authorized biography. Contents under pressure. He was one of the researchers on the critically acclaimed documentary on the group Beyond the Lighted Stage. And now, now Martin is taking you further into the world of Rush than ever before. It all started with the first novel in this series, Anthem Rush in the 70s, and now now it is time for the release for the second part of this series, Limelight Rush in the 80s, and we're going to dive into what that world looked like. The band was coming off of Hemispheres, an album that did very well, but was incredibly taxing on the group. The band also started to use synthesizers a lot more going into the 80s. So how did that affect their sound? How did changing producers affect things for the band? And as well, the 80s were the beginning of MTV, the music video era. So how is it for Rush sort of going into that new territory as well? We're going to talk about all of these things, and it's all just a brushing of the surface of what is included inside of a limelight. And it's all brought to you today by DesertTigerMerch.com, because that's where you go. That's where you go to grab yourself something to represent the show everywhere you go. And now, I believe it is time that we jumped into this Conversation with acclaimed author Martin Popoff, the Desert Tiger Podcast. Hey, how are you, Colton? I am fantastic. How are you doing, Martin? Good. Okay, so what are we talking about? Rush? No, oh, I I would love to do that. Okay, sure. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean. Today we're bringing us together to talk about your second book in this latest collection of Rush written material that you have graced this world with. This is Limelight, Rush in the 80s, your first book, Anthem, Rush in the 70s, released earlier this year. You have another one coming out in 2021, so I mean, for some of the audience that maybe doesn't know, you're pretty much one of the premier researchers, not only in rock music, metal music, but in Rush history. You've also released three books prior to this. So what brought in this new reiteration of Rush literature? Well, um,
1: so the first book was called Contents Under Pressure, and that goes back to 2003. And uh, it was an authorized official Rush biography, but it was pretty short. It was a it was a full color book throughout, but only, I think, 60 something thousand words. And then, yeah, I did an illustrated history, which was a different thing. And then I did an album by album, which is a really weird format where I just got a bunch of Rush fans, you know, as famous as possible. And we just kind of went through every studio album Q&A. And I did five books like that on different bands. But then what happened was I also worked on the Rush movie, um, Beyond the Lighted Stage. And, you know, I was there full time for nine months on that thing at, at the front end of the uh, at the research and writing team end of it. And I would also transcribe a lot of those interviews. So one day I just thought years later after the movie was long and gone, I just thought, well, why don't I just uh, approach Scott and Sam and see if, you know, if I could uh, make a deal with them to uh, to basically use what we didn't use in the movie. Uh, because I knew there was so much great footage uh, and and do a book thing. So this is even before I even went back to ECW and said, you know, let's do this project. So essentially, that was a, a good way to get a bunch of a bunch of great rush stuff. And then I thought, OK, so I'm going to update the official one because it's super old. I'm going to do a lot of analyzing as well, because I, I did these two books for Voyager Press, who I also did two rush books for one on Led Zeppelin, one on Clash, where I had to uh, write like 500 words on every single song they ever did. So that, that I was inspired by that as well. So I thought, okay, outside press, all of this great material, update on the old book, a lot of analysis, just throw everything but the kitchen sink at it. And I started writing it and the original plan was we we're going to have one massive book, but then I quickly realized we had three. So I thought, okay, let's break it up in these different ways. And uh, and that's why we've got, you know, the first book at however many pages it is. Uh, I think it's in the 300 range, and this one's a little bit less. This one's maybe 260, something like that. But the last one is actually quite quite a bit longer. I think it's more like 350 or 400. So essentially, uh, yeah, a trilogy came out of the whole thing, and, and hopefully I'm done with Rush now, finally.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... You've given various different perspectives, and like you said, you did do contents under pressure, but there was only so much depth that that gave us. So this is definitely giving the fans of the band, which does have a very strong cult following, a much more in-depth and a much more from the band's perspective and a lot of the people who are around the band. Definitely. There's a lot. I mean, people have said almost like it reads like an oral history.
1: I try to stay more or less out of it. I have no ego in this at all. I don't really care to, you know, I mean, my opinions and analysis are in there, but I definitely don't go overboard. So yeah, it's it's definitely in their words, which is, which is cool. That's what I want to bring to any rock book I do. I mean, I, I really want to be able to bring something new to the table and not just have it being you know, my opinion or, or all like, you know, the outside press. Granted, Russia's done a lot of press over the years, but, uh, you know, some of that is in here. Um, but
0: basically I wanted to make sure it brought something new to the table. Otherwise I wouldn't, wouldn't have done. it. Okay. Well, let's get into some of the contents of limelight here. So of course it finds us moving out of the 80s or moving into the 80s out of the 70s where 79 was definitely a recessionary year for the music industry things didn't look so great and the band themselves yes they were coming out of the studio and their first album that kicks off the decade is right at the beginning of 80 but they're also coming off of hemispheres a very well regarded album but one that was definitely trying for the band. So where does the band find themselves moving into this new era?
1: Well, I think they've kind of decided that, uh, you know, like they say, Hemispheres was the, was the album that almost broke the camel's back. So the idea was that they were going to try to write some shorter songs. Neil's writing a little more universal, you know, things that everybody thinks about more mankind, you know, rather than, uh, you know, Greek mythology or sci-fi or whatever. And but, you know, it's, it's still a pretty proggy album. It's not a very long album, which is kind of odd, but it, it still has fairly long songs, but they aren't as long as like a whole side. So it's not a concept or a half concept album like uh, like Hemispheres is and like 2112 is. They're both kind of half concept albums. Right. And then they ended up having a hit single at the same time with with the Spirit of Radio, which uh, was a pretty big hit. It catapulted them It set them up for the for the for the really big album, which was Moving Pictures.
0: So at this time too Rush is very much out on the road they're touring like just as hard as pretty much any other band that's out there they're putting a lot of money into their stage presence and finally with moving pictures as well they're finally starting to get to that level where they're headlining and they're touring and how did that sort of affect everything
1: Yeah at, at this point they are pretty much headliners no more you know having to deal with Aerosmith or Kiss or whatever um or Uriah Heep, uh, you know, in the early years, who were, by the way, quite good, good to them. I'm, I'm a big heap fan as well. But uh, they, they basically, um, they are headliners. They're moving in, you know, from the, from the B-City hockey barns into the A-City hockey barns, as it were, right? Playing play to, uh, you know, 15, 16,000 people, I suppose. Well, I mean, definitely as, as moving pictures uh, is happening. Uh, and they're a headliner and they never look back. They never become not a headliner again. And, yeah, they were, they were pretty good at, uh, you know, this generosity towards the fans of really actually reinvesting a lot of their money in the show. So very quickly, um, you know, with, with not a lot of people really noticing or, or giving them credit for this, but very quickly they, um, they became uh, a band that actually had one of the bigger shows eventually, you know, with a lot of technology and stuff. They added a lot of video and stuff. They were pioneers for that. But yeah, so at this point they're they're essentially headliner act, and they've got backup bands. And then a, as you move even further forward into the '90s and stuff, they eventually get to an evening with Rush where they're playing three hours with no backup band, right? But at this point, they're they're basically uh, you know the it band, you know, from Moving Pictures into Signals. They're essentially uh, a, a a pretty darn big band, you know, as as big as any of those uh, hardworking you know upper me- medium tier bands they aren't they aren't uh, the rolling stones or anything like that but they're but they're a, a a fairly popular band at this point
0: okay so of course you mentioned that the group is sort of transitioning sounds as well they were the pioneers of progressive metal you have said in the past and now they're sort of working more into progressive rock almost a pop sound with the introduction of keyboards throughout the 80s what brought on of this new technology throughout this decade
1: i think they're just creatively inquisitive and they they do like music they're music fans so they're looking at what's new you know as as time goes on so this is getty atop adopting the keyboard technology and it starts really small and it gets bigger and bigger it never gets too incredibly big uh, or even a huge part of their sound well, on record, it does not, not particularly on stage, but, um, they're just, they're just liking all these new toys and these new gizmos and they, and they are trying to move forward. They obviously, they move away from Terry Brown into Peter Henderson and Peter Collins. And by the time you get to power windows and, and hold your fire, yeah, Neil's got electronic drums going. Um, you know, he's hitting the syndromes and all this, and, and the keyboard sounds are very stabby. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're quite loud and braying by this point where, where they kind of, You know mixed in nicer on signals I thought it had more of an analog sort of sound But by this point they're doing all this and I'm not crazy about these albums and I do question you know I don't think they dated as well as the 70s stuff or even moving pictures or signals So I think they kind of went overboard You know when you're early adopters of something You know you can sometimes get burned right? I mean, you know anybody who spent tons of money on their early computers or their early video games or any of that stuff, right? You, you know, as 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 things progress, um, it turns out to be maybe you spent too much money on it. Right. Or uh, but but on these records, it, it's a little bit like they, they dove in both feet first, six feet first, whatever, um, you know, into these sounds. And I don't think hold your fire and power windows particularly hold up that well.
0: Oh, absolutely. And part of that is the transition and the changing of producers, possibly, where moving from the trusted Terry Brown and making the decision to possibly find a new influence. But what did the uh, changes in producer between Terry Brown and then the small stopgap at Peter Henderson into Peter Collins
1: Yeah. So so the idea there is that, uh, well, Peter, Peter Henderson, first of all, that was a letdown because Steve Lillywhite had stood them up. They were supposed to work with him. And then to their horror, they found Peter Henderson, you know, wasn't particularly opinionated and giving them much direction. And they wanted a lot of direction because they're smart guys. They want other smart guys in the room. They, They don't mind being told no to. Um, they'll have a healthy debate about it, but but they really didn't get a lot out of him in terms of the creative. So they were a little disappointed with that, and that album was made in freezing cold, and it took a long, long time. But you move on to Peter Collins, and here you know he he's called Mister Big, right? So he is opinionated, and he and he there are certain things about Rush he didn't like, and and they would uh, they would cede to his his wishes sometimes, and and he would get his way. And he would bring this English new wave sensibility to the band. And uh, and they still look back on those albums fondly. I mean, they don't they don't look back on them as as uh, badly as a curmudgeonly old 70s headbanging fan would. Um, (laughs) You know, they 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 thought they were pretty good. But, you know, the, the other curious thing about the Rush guys is that they always admit that they could have made mistakes along the way, too. Um, so sometimes, you know, they look back on these eras and think, oh, we made mistakes and other, other times they sort of stand up for these records. But so, so essentially he was bringing this aesthetic that I, that I suppose he talked them into, or they were willingly, uh, into it, this, this sort of, uh, you know, tight in the middle, kind of mid rangey, trebly screechy sort of sound that's missing a lot of bass and it's not very analog and it doesn't have much, much high end except for toppiness on even bass guitars for that matter, and guitars and uh, snappy, snappy, tight snare drums and all that kind of thing, right? So, so that's what you get off of those two records. And then, of course, they move on to Rupert Hine, another, another you know, curious sort of English figure. They, they, that's an odd choice. And things don't really change particularly much. I mean, they, they do talk about that last record, Presto, as being more of a, um, a songwriter record, a singing record. Uh, I guess Getty's really toning down the singing somewhat uh, progressively over time. But, but really, I don't think the sound is all that much bigger. And I think the keyboards are still sort of there. It It's still kind of tiny sounding, right? So, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that record all that much either. I and mean, then they kind of do the same thing with roll of the bones again, but uh, yeah, so that's your, that's your sort of um, producer throughput. I mean, again, I guess the recap is, is that, they, they want creative people in the room because they want
0: healthy discussion. For sure. And you would think that they took on a few producers that were very opinionated about Rush and had their opinions about Rush. And even with Henderson saying that he wasn't a very big fan of Geddy Lee's vocals. But then when he gets in the studio, has not a whole lot to say for him.
1: Yeah. And Peter Collins, I think, said kind of the same thing. And so, you know, Rush is happy with someone not coming from that progressive handlebar mustache, progressive metal 70s thing because they, they do want a, a fresh look at things. It's almost like Rush is, is subliminally saying, you know, make us not sound like Rush, uh, you know, give, give, us something, give us something different to do here. And that's, and that's them just being creatively fearless and moving forward.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. and you have to do that as a musician and sometimes those albums are collections of who these individuals are at these times too.
1: Yep, yep. And their videos reflect that and their and their wardrobe and their haircuts and everything reflect a kind of an embracing of the 80s uh, for, for better or worse. And you know, I think the verdict is still out uh you know maybe the 80s will be cool once again at some point but it but it's so far hasn't happened i don't think <laughs> uh, along the way the 70s became cool again but i'm i'm not sure i i guess the 80s still has uh, has to have its time like maybe maybe in 20
0: years these will be looked at as the absolute coolest records rush ever did mhm there's small 80s influences making their way into some forms of music right now but we'll see exactly how far they go yeah, yeah. Yeah for, sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So you mentioned the music videos and the 80s was definitely the birth of MTV in that generation and you also mentioned that the band through numerous ways either through the keyboards or with stage presence were definitely jumping feet first in with a lot of things. Do you feel that music videos were they also tackled this way?
1: Yeah, and I think they did a pretty good job of it. I mean, they do have some embarrassing things and some, you know, some early uses of technology that that don't look so great now. But, uh, you know, it, it was pretty cool that Rush got in with the videos pretty early on and they got played a lot, especially up here in Canada, because we had our own MTV up here called Much Music, which was just as powerful in Canada as uh, two Canadians as, as much, or MTV was in the States. Right. Yes. Um, and, you know, Rush being Canadian. I mean, they, I'm, I'm sure they got much more play up here, but Rush, Rush did well in the States too. That's the other thing. I mean, they just, they just went to the States and just hammered on the States all the time. I mean, I, I, I swear like many, many Rush fans probably think they're an American band. Although Rush fans are pretty, <laughs> pretty knowledgeable about things too. Right. But, uh, but no, I, I, I think getting in on the videos and putting a lot of sweat eth into them um has has turned out some some pretty iconic video work and you know so they got their piece of the pie they got their piece of the promotional action out of videos it wasn't that they they missed an
0: opportunity there they 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 got in and took took advantage of that opportunity Okay, for sure. Um, you mentioned that maybe some of you '80s m- or '70s metal heads who had adopted the band early maybe were getting frustrated with some of the new albums. Maybe sales were being affected. Was part of that uh, touring schedule through the United States part of what helped keep the band afloat, help them keep successful?
1: Absolutely, or it actually is the success in a way. I mean, uh, literally, Rush has a little bit of a b- different business model. It's not terribly different, but basically Rush, because they put so much into their show and they were so good live and they had the video and they had all sorts of stuff to keep people entertained, they quietly sold lots and lots and lots of tickets even when their record sales were were going down. Um, so so they they did quite well out there. So it almost was their living playing live, right? Um, because the records, you know, were were falling into that. Going gold situation in the states, whereas before it was multi-platinum and platinum, it it had dropped off. Uh, you you were getting every one of these was going gold, which is which is pretty incredible, even even still. I mean, when when bands look back, you know, they they you know certainly once physical product went away, bands would look back longingly at the days when they could have a gold record, right? Uh, but Rush was was definitely doing that all the time. So so you're right. You make a good point. But, yeah, it's almost like it's not that the live work, the touring helped, uh, helped, um, you know, the su- it, it was the success, essentially. It was more the success, and, you know, because really even even success in terms of being like well regarded and talked about. Rush didn't have that uh, in the 80s,
0: particularly. They weren't that well regarded and they weren't that talked about. Hmm. For sure. Definitely that cult band sort of following that we spoke about earlier. Mm -hmm. So I want to also speak just about the songwriting And one of what is considered Rush's biggest songs in Tom Sawyer And of course, this song had a little bit of inspiration From a Canadian poet who the band found through tourmates Max Webster, P. Bois. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Louis the Lawyer, Tom Sawyer yeah, so Pai Dubois is
1: the lyricist for Max Webster. I mean, he's basically the 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 fifth member of the band. Hang on, five, one, two, three, four. I, yeah, something like that. <laughs> he's either sixth or fifth. Anyways, he, he, he wrote he wrote basically about, I would say 75% of all the lyrics for Max Webster. He's a good buddy of mine. I talk to him all the time. Um, but he um, so and he was always on tour with them anyway. So it's it's not not exactly like they found him or discovered him. He was just always there. They knew him as much as everybody else. He's just a buddy of the band, right? Because Max Webster is supporting uh, Rush on all those early tours. Um, so they're all buddies. They're all on the same record label, uh, same management. You know, they're all, they're all from Toronto. So essentially. Um, it just turned out one day that pie had a bunch of his lyrics and neil was there i think this might have been at the battle scar session which is which is uh, a song that russian max webster literally play together and it's on a max webster album right their last album universal juveniles and um and basically you know oh, what are you working on oh i got this oh maybe we can collaborate or whatever and and um so it turned out to be the first of i i think it's four five or six songs maybe four ish five ish i can't remember but essentially um, there's there's this little handful of songs through the Rush catalog that are that are you know lyrics by Neil and Pi combined right uh, a co-credit and essentially that has to happen um, i'm i'm realizing more so why now because i'm kind of helping pi we're we're possibly going to put together like a book of his poetry oh, his wow. not his non-lyrics um, but so i'm kind of editing him right now and i see what that process is like it's exactly how neil told me it was like it's like you get a whole bunch of stuff and it's just disparate lines here or there or whatever, and you have to really hammer it into shape. So Neil would have had to do quite a quite a rewrite job and an edit job to turn that into a song, you know, n- notwithstanding the fact that now you got to, you know, give it to a singer to sing and it. it's got to be in a rock and roll album. Right. So so there's a lot of work that has to go into it. Um, and so so they co-wrote,
0: uh, you know, what turned out to be Russia's biggest song, which is really cool. Absolutely Wow, we've covered quite a few stories through this 80s journey, but this is only a cover. There's so much more inside of Limelight inside of Anthem and I'm like you said, inside of driven which is coming up, rush in the 90s in the end. Yeah, that's uh, that's like I say, the
1: longest of all these books, and because it does cover twenty five years, right? And and obviously some unfortunate tragedies and Neil dying. We just got to change that right at the end because that book's been written for a long, long time. Um, so uh, so yeah, that that one covers a lot of different records and uh, and you know the tours and the records spreading out and a lot of stuff that happens. But this '80s one is is. Well, it's different from the 70s one because the 70s had a big, long lead up because Rush essentially, you know, they they were a band from 69 to 74 without an album out, right? I mean, 74 is when they really, really start, but they they went a long time early. So that ha- that one has a lot of the childhood sort of stuff uh, in it, uh, you know, teen years, teen years mostly. Um, uh, but, but then Limelight is, yeah, them just going to work and just becoming, you
0: know, big, huge rock stars, basically. Mm-hmm. the growth of the band and throughout and then of course driven the closing chapter comes out next year in 2021 yep absolutely yeah
1: and i've got all these you know basically these are all i've i just actually bought another batch of 50 anthem and 50 limelight so i i basically at martinpopoff.com i i sign these and send them out and i actually just recently got some um limelight and anthem bookmarks so those are going in the orders that i'm filling right now so uh so yeah those are and there's paypal buttons and everything there but uh basically any any of my books i basically buy a supply of them uh and uh and sign them and ship them out from the office
0: hey well if anybody wants one of those personally signed by the author you know where to find it martinpopoff.com absolutely yep All right, all right. Well, Martin, a book with P. Dubois coming out in the future, another book with Rush. You run your own podcast, shipping out all these books. What else do you possibly have going on in the future? Well, the podcast stuff, I'm,
1: I'm working on a book on Angel right now. Uh, tomorrow I received Thin Lizzy, a visual biography. I've also got a blueish jacolte visual biography that's recent but um no just that other rush one i've got a sweet book that i've kind of um got i'm, I'm about 80 percent done going on a lot of shows been on been going on pete pardo's The sea of tranquility a lot but yeah the history in five songs with martin popoff podcast i do that every single week i'm up to 70 episodes of that so yeah just uh just you know toiling away at that stuff i mean it might seem like a lot of output but i'm one of the few guys that you know, writing books is the full time job, right? It's uh, most people don't have this as their full time job. And even more so even before when I was more of a, a, a re- well rounded rock journalist guy, you know, there used to be five magazines and a lot of print and a lot of website stuff and liner notes and all that sort of thing. Um, but you know, most of that has fallen away with the changes in the music business. So yeah, it's basically books all the time. So it, it looks like a lot of output, but it's, it's not really that much work
0: hey while you're still continuing to not only give those who grew up with these bands a further look into the world you're allowing people of my generation and even younger the ability to see into what the world of these bands was like and we appreciate you for that cool thank you
1: yeah it's cool i mean it's it's great when (laughs) newer generations i discover all this old stuff because i basically believe me i i just write about a lot of really old bands
0: (laughs) (laughs) well hey i mean if it pays the bills nothing wrong with that
1: no it it eventually won't pay the bills because because all of us will be dying off all the people who care about this music you know slowly even even if there are young people coming on it's it's still going to decline obviously always right
0: very true Very true. And the industry changes just like the music industry continues to as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, Martin. I want to thank you so much for joining us here today to tell us about Limelight Rush in the 80s, to take us behind a few of the stories, and well, give us a little bit more insight into yourself.
1: Yeah, well, thank you very much. This has been fun.
0: Oh, yes. It has truly been a blast. And I hope that you, the ambush, feels the same way. I hope you enjoyed this conversation here with Martin Popoff. And of course, it was only a dusting of the surface of the world of Rush in the 80s. And you can find out so much more in Martin's new book, Limelight, Rush in the 80s. You can find it right now at martinpopoff.com get yourself a signed copy while you're there you can also get a copy of anthem rush in the 70s the first book in this new collection and both of those can hold you over until 2021 when driven rush in the 90s and beyond drops then and hopefully hopefully we are lucky enough that martin Popoff has the ability to join us again That is in the future, and as of right now, it's time to give out these final roaring desert tiger thank yous. We're gonna start it off with a roaring DTP thank you to Martin Popoff for joining us here today to take us into the world of a rush in the 80s, and I also have to thank the person who helped set it all up, and that is the wonderfully. Talented Susanna Ames over at ECW Press. Last but not least, the final roar and DTB, Thank you goes to you, the loyal, dedicated ambush for tuning into this episode of the podcast. For you continuing to tune into episodes of the podcast as we shift into two episodes a week here into what is year four of desert tiger we love you for it if you haven't joined up with the ambush yet it is so so easy all you have to do is hit subscribe on the podcast service you are using right now you can also help the show grow by giving us a big old five star review You can share this episode with your friends, your family, heck, maybe even your enemies. And you can also check out DesertTigerMerch.com. Alright, this Friday, October the 30th, 2020, on the podcast, we are joined by... Nevi's, we speak to her about her self-titled debut EP in the singles The Road that has led her to this point. But until then, until then you know what it is, you know what I want you to do. I want you to go out there and find your oasis, to find your mountaintop, to find the thing that makes your heart sing to its fullest glory and capacity. Find that thing, craft it, hone it, grow with it, and then once you grow with it, you let that roar out across that canyon, out across that waterfront, and you show everyone just how powerful your roar is, and just how beautiful you are capable of being because sometimes we don't hear it enough, so I'm going to say it again. You best believe it. You are fall And until next week, Bye bye And remember that some are born to move the world to live their fantasies.